Greetings to everyone. Welcome to the 10th episode of the Greek Speak podcast, hosted by the Archon and the Greek. We finally reached the last stream of this series, and I think it's long overdue. If you stuck with us this far, then I presume you found the podcast to be something insightful, and that's great. Thank you for that. But I look forward to bringing things to a close today, and we're going to be tackling subjects that are close to home for all of us, given the current health crisis. And we'll also be looking at what the future holds. So let's get to it. But as always, GreekSpeak.com has never had any commercial, religious, or political affiliations and was always something that I ran for the sake of the project itself. And so that's it for the introduction. Please enjoy the rest of the show and thanks again for listening. Hi there, Greek. Are you there? Hi there. Yes, I am. Hello. So, I don't know about you, but uh, I'm relieved that we're about to conclude the series that's taken a year when it should have taken four months. Not that I don't enjoy speaking with you, but I think even the best of things run their course. Um, there's a lot of social and economic activity that's being stifled in the West because of a reported pandemic. The cause is attributed to some kind of a virus that's said to be life-threatening. They call it the coronavirus. It's said to have originated somewhere in China, Wuhan, China, um, in the food markets there because of the bats that they sell. And we see a lot of governments that are imposing states of emergency on their people because the UN declared a pandemic in mid-March. So, first of all, what can be said about the nature of this biological agent, Greek? Uh, well, the nature, there is no nature to it. It's fiction uh, in terms of the biological aspect to it uh, from a mechanistic point of view. Um, uh, just to time date this, it's uh, what they call towards the end of March on uh, the year 2020 on the Pope's work schedule. So uh, as it is uh, now, uh, I think uh, people that are familiar with Greek speak, even beyond these podcasts, have uh, picked up perhaps... Uh, more than just a few bits of info on on how the human body works, what the medical establishment is really doing, and uh, people's perception of anything living, which is at a minimum, by the way. So you know, let's just uh, let's just embed a little bit of a history, uh, a tradition, culture, and all this, uh, and let people actually come to a conclusion, the rightful conclusion on this. Uh, during the medieval ages, uh, and up to the Renaissance and beyond, uh, Europe was controlled by uh, uh, basically an imperial system, meaning by empire. And uh, you mostly hear of things coming out of the Vatican, out of the Catholic, what's called the Catholic Church. And they had a pretty good stronghold uh, on on Europe and most of the world at that time because of, uh, at least the Western world, because of the financial center there, which is, of course, what you see going on now, financial being embroiled with this. But my point here is from a, what's called science, which is learning or knowledge, uh, what the church had done, uh, both uh, privately and publicly, is stated to the quote-unquote natural philosophers, because there were no scientists back then, they were called natural philosophers, people who studied nature, what they call physics today, and just uh, the material world or the world at large. The, the Vatican pretty much had a stance that uh, they can study anything as long as it had a material basis or material cause. Anything that was immaterial, was uh, within the domain of the Catholic Church or the Vatican. Now, in today's uh, vernacular, things like radio, electricity, um, what people call microwaves or, or even light, 
those are those are still immaterial phenomena, natural phenomenon. Um, but they, because of this Vatican-esque Catholic uh, mindset that was put on 500 years ago, they fabricate things like photons and uh, electrons. You know that you know photons are light particles and uh, uh, elect electrons are electrical particles, and everything's a particle, right? It's like the the Vatican the Vatican cult of particles is really what you're experiencing. So nothing can be pervade even as a concept unless it has a particular agent behind it. So when they're telling you the strict cause of uh, an outbreak or a pandemic is this little particular virus, if you take it uh, at face value and you have at least uh, maybe a handful of brain cells between your ears, and you have a little bit of time on your hands to research this, you'll find within usually between five or 10 minutes of research that it is a, a part of germ theory, and anything that's defined uh, within uh, a, a being a constituent of, of a virus is under the study of virology, which is the study of toxicology. Uh, also, you will find within the first few minutes that viruses are dead uh, proteins. But yet, it, what I, the things I just mentioned, that if anyone does an objective study on whatever body of knowledge, medical, let's say, or scientific has been accumulated regarding the subject, will find it is in high contrast and almost direct opposition to what you're being told in the media by the authorities and so on. So without actually calling it a farce it's it's beyond that it's basically a mind game and um and from a personal commentary point uh you get what you deserve you know there's no way uh you can go spending your life saying that i'm going to do what i do and i want to know about science i'm going to look at these jokers and learn something um without looking into it before it matters right and now when it matters no one wants to look at it because they're into a panic i see so if it can be shown that it's not what they're saying, can we say what it is or is it, do you feel like it's too premature? To... Sure, sure. Now, in other words, to actually formalize it and, and do a, a serious treatise on this would require a lot of resources. But what we can observe, um, let's, let's say uh, there was no study of electricity and you wanted to embark on it, you would have the most rudimentary and crude things to start doing electrical experiments, right? You'd probably have pieces of wood, pieces of copper, some uh, chain, right? Iron chains, right? You'd be starting off in the most rudimentary way. So uh, from the position that I see it, if we look at the what I call grunt work, that's grunt work is just like digging ditches. It's a lot of work, but it's not technical, meaning um, all of the diagrams, schematics and uh, anatomical studies of biological things all the way from the uh, the roots of plants and trees to the bodies uh, inside and outside of anatomy of fish to insects, to human, if you look at the human intestines uh, in, in uh, anatomy books, inside the lumina, you know, the opening of um, intestines, arteries, organs, cell tissues, and all that, you'll find that they all have one thing in common. And that thing in common is that they're surrounded by uh, a, a cytomembrane, which is a, a cell membrane. And once that membrane is uh, examined, it's extremely robust. It, uh, other than high mineral things like bones and teeth, uh, you know, if you're going to have a pliable membrane, it, it's basically the cell wall. And nothing goes through it, by the way. So you have a, a central containment system with mitochondria, plasma, cytofluids, you know, um, 
nuke what they call a nucleus uh, on and on and on there are orifices that are that, that seem like projections uh, inward projections in cells that look like for example the pores on skin and nothing goes in and out of it you'll see it as a termination point so just by looking at these rudimentary supplies you know meaning uh, anatomical diagrams and studies that have been done and looking at how uh, con uh, uh, things change in condition for example if you uh, back in the days when you had magnetic tape you bought or today would be a blank CD or DVD and it had no information on it, you would uh, find the correct format and format it and copy another disc onto it. And that is an information transfer. For example, people that are old enough to remember magnetic tape, you know, you dubbed a magnetic tape and your formats had to be in line uh, for, for the uh, copying process to take place. Uh, another an example would be induction. Um, a contactless uh, charging on these cordless toothbrushes. They have a charging bay and there's no metal to conduct so-called so conduct electricity. It's by induction, just like two coils would induct next to each other. So, and I'm suggesting induction uh, strongly because if anyone does any research on uh, late 19th, up to the late 19th century, uh, anything on pathology and epidemiology and uh, let's say toxicology and ultimately pandemic and disease study, most of the books were titled uh, within the, either the book itself or chapters within the book, The Induction of Disease. Not the contagion, not to, no, you don't, con like, now everyone contracts a disease. Years ago, you used to induce it, right? Then they still have that term induction, like when you induce vomiting, right? You actually find a pressure point uh, that spurs a gag reflex and prolonged gag reflex probably will induce vomiting. You only see that word used very infrequently. So the actual mechanism itself does not exist in a material sense, you see. Uh, also, the, the actual uh, science, if anyone wants to get, in, you know, actually knowledge of it, you're going to have to understand material a little bit more than, than you perceive it. In other words, most of the information about what material is has already been supplied, except for the planetary model of the atom and electrons and things like that. But the properties of uh, living things from a material perspective have already been supplied. Now you have to uh, piece it together on how... Um, let's say a pandemic or a disease would be induced based on lack of material infiltration into a cell. And there's only one way that can be done again, and it's by induction. For example, if you look at the, a lot of the studies that uh, were done in early electricity, Galvani, where you get the term uh, galvanism, galvanic reaction, things like that, he stated that most metals have an atmosphere on them which is interesting. And when I, when I mean an atmosphere, it's, an, it's a layer that is subject to the body itself. It's a gaseous layer. And uh, people also have an atmosphere. As a matter of fact, uh, you see it very often uh, illustrated in cartoons where someone's really smelly, they're walking around and you see they act, the cartoonist actually draws an atmosphere around them, right? Like little rays or lines, like, you know, maybe sometimes in Charles Schultz drew like a fly buzzing around, right? But within the atmosphere of that individual, someone sprays a bunch of cologne on, you know, when you get, once you get into their atmospheric range, you can smell the cologne, right? These things uh, can be observed from a very practical sense. So, I just laid out the foundation of what needs to be investigated. Um, you could look up Rudolf Hoschka. He was trying to find out the vitality or what's called a vitamin and the vital essence of things by subjecting various 
yeast cultures and bacteria to various things that were known to be have vital uh, uh, energy to them, like spinach cultures and various starches and proteins. And he would mix it with the the, uh, the simple life forms and see how they would react, or sometimes deprive them of it and see how they would react. But eventually, he found out you didn't have to actually combine the substances together. Mere proximity was enough. Okay. So uh, another example of a lack of um, direct physical manifestation in a particular way would be people uh, having electrosensitivity. And it's already been well established that uh, the, the whole field of radio is a non-material phenomenon. And of course, they'll always say it's electrons moving through the air, but there's nothing moving through the air. It's an oxymoron because many of the older radio systems were vacuum tubes. Anything going through that would compromise the vacuum and the system would stop working. So it, I don't think it's possible based on culture and tradition and what people consider uh, to be authority, um, in other words, following the, the academic authority or what's taught in the academy to have any change uh, from the perspective of a lack of a material constituent, which is the fundamental aspect of pandemic or disease. Okay. So what we can conclude is that this is not a disease that spread to contact or one person coughing on another, um, but by this inductive process that you're talking about. We have somebody in the chat who's asking if you could compare it to a poison. Well, the, it's all developed by the body. For example, when you take a poison and let's say it goes, why don't we get back to it? Yes, it can be uh, spread, of course, through contact and someone coughing on you. Yeah, that. see, this is the problem very often with trying to show what many... Um, many uh, consider it to be contrary information, then they bundle it up and say everything I've been told is no good. No, that's not true. Whether there's electricity uh, that is non-material going through a, a large AC wire or whether it's electrons, if you touch it, you're going to be electrocuted either way. So the final, the, fi the, 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 the terminal result is the same, whether you, you believe it's a particle or not. But uh, once you have contact, well, that actually supersedes induction. What happens inside the body is purely by induction. When you take a poison, something that is toxic to the body, and it passes from the mouth through the, uh, the, the throat into the stomach, past the duodenum, let's say, into the colon and all that, that is the entire point. You know, let's say it's an ingestible one versus an inhalable one. Um, that uh, you're, you're, unless it's... Uh, such a robust chemical that it actually disintegrates the uh, the cell wall and penetrates and causes sepsis, which is bleeding from the inside out. Well, what happens is that uh, that poison has to be recognized by the body as something it could reproduce. And what I mean by reproduce, it's no different than what you see in science fiction, where you have uh, the, the Gene Roddenberry series of Star Trek. When you're hungry, you go to a food replicator, right? Your body is constantly replicating things, but it has to recognize it. So, for example, if you have, uh, let's say, the ability to uh, not reproduce a known toxin in your body, it won't poison you. So the, uh, the concept of induction goes beyond just pen, what's called, uh, let's say, the pathology of disease and all that, but it's also the way your body ingests anything, whether it's the lungs or the intestines or your skin. It's all done by transmutation. Again, one might just take a minute, clear their mind, and think about what I'm saying. And if this was commonly known, and it was because it's it's actually very perceivable what I'm saying, uh, based on the uh, work you can gather from the academy and uh, meaning the reference materials that they put out, and based on uh, having access to a living body, 
by the way, ha ha ha, right? So just think about how fundamentally ridiculous it is that you don't even know how your own body works. And I don't mean you specifically, but yeah, you generally. Mm. Uh, but imagine, imagine though that people actually were raised and you had a society that was built around knowledge of how bio biological things really work, uh, which is the essence of transmutation or replication. Don't you think you might want to apply that concept that now you've mastered and can handle very well and mitigate problems with? Don't you think you might want to actually apply that to your your technology, your science, and your culture. Do you know what kind of a what kind of power and accessibility to all things a culture that knew and understood how to replicate things would have? It'd be considerable. So I recently came across an article where a medical worker describes the lung failure that the condition creates in their patients when the disease gets very aggressive. Um, so I was wondering if I could read some bits of that, and then maybe you can comment on some of the things that you hear happening. Okay. okay. So I knew it was going to be bad, but we deal with the flu every year, so I was thinking it's probably not that much worse than the flu, but it's more frightening. I'm seeing patients who look relatively healthy that are completely wiped out, like they've been hit by a truck. Patients will be on minimal life support, and then all of a sudden they go into complete respiratory arrest and can't breathe at all. We have patients on a cardiac monitor and we're seeing when their heart rate has a sudden increase or decrease or one of us goes in to visit the patient and then sees them struggling to breathe. That seems to be what happens to a lot of these patients. They suddenly become unresponsive or go into respiratory failure and then the lungs get filled with fluid. Normally this is something that happens over time as the lungs get more and more inflamed but with this virus it seems like it's happening overnight. In my experience this kind of issue is typical of someone who has a near drowning experience or with people who inhale caustic gas. When someone has an infection, the normal colors you associate with it are green and yellow. With the coronavirus patients, they have a lot of secretions that are pink because they're filled with blood cells that are leaking into their airways. So they're essentially drowning in their own blood." End quote. All right, the comment on that is very simple. If one studies, for example, uh, the nature of pandemics, you, you might get, well, it's been highly censored, but that sounds very similar but not exact to the pandemic, the what's the American army flu or called the Spanish flu in 1918. Uh, people died within 24 to 48 hours. It, it sounds like uh, the description I was giving earlier, when the intestines or the body uh, induce something, it's different than if that Subs that something was the toxin, let's say, penetrating the cell wall and killing its victim that way. So this sounds more like that. I've also seen several references online um, that it is a nerve agent reaction, right, which is typical. The the pink fluids and all that are, are not infection. Um, now, just to go back to the early pandemic, what's called the bird flu that was uh, designed, by the way, there are people who design and put these things together, and it's not done in a laboratory like people are told. Never, it's it can't be done in a laboratory. Uh, the it can be, uh, let's say, samples can be stored in a laboratory, but that's not how it's done. And I think we, in private, I have explained how pandemics are created and and from the bubonic on, and I, it's not something I want to go on a on a podcast and describe. Um, but um, it's not an it's not in a laboratory that's clinical. Uh, so again, what what you read was from a clinical perspective. I think it was from a nurse, was it not? Yes, that's right. Right. Okay. Um, so again, uh, 
there, her perspective is that there are viruses do exist and things like that. So uh, hopefully what, what you read, uh, she had enough clarity. The clarity that we, that we can see is the description of the fluids, right? Because obviously this nurse, if she's working in there, she's brainwashed. Otherwise, she wouldn't be working there. Uh, so we have to rely on what we consider to be objective. And if you objectify what is mentioned, not only by her, but other sources that you can see, they're all pretty much uh, in, in agreement. It's very rapid, and it doesn't uh, fall within the um, parameters of an infection. Yeah, I would suggest that uh, if you look at the geographic components, which, by the way, most of these websites that show the, the spread of this pandemic were created, I think, last year, November or October. Um, so that gives you a little bit of, of insight uh, on the timing of this, right, or well, the well-known timing of it. The other thing is, if you look at how it's been vectored throughout the world, it just doesn't make any sense. They have something called patient zero, which is the first one who started spreading it that cannot be identified anywhere. Um, so I would suggest this is what's called a black op. And it's a conspiracy just, be, uh, you know, for example, I was on a sidebar on YouTube. It was just conspiracy or fact. Well, so if it's conspiracy, there's no such thing as a factual conspiracy, right? Anyway, uh, so there is a conspiracy, obviously, to hide uh, its origination point. Uh, uh, and I think I've gone through the in brief, perhaps about the legal system and other things about the worldwide conspiracy that is unknown. And most people today are very well, uh, very well understand the existence. Um, and I don't mean right or wrong, but just the very existence of secrecy in their society through intelligence agencies, secret societies, uh, people keeping their own secrets. But but basically groups, large groups of people that are well funded that operate in secret and it's fully accepted. Right. And because that's fully accepted, this is just, you know, one of the sidebars of it. Right. So or in other words, it's one of the benefits of accepting uh, secret societies, intelligence agencies, secret police, secret government meetings, secret corporate meetings, all these things. This is I just see it as a um, the benefit of secrecy. So from the secret point of view, I don't I'm, because I'm not involved directly. Uh, with any of these secret groups, intelligence uh, or otherwise, uh, I can tell you what uh, I can garner from objecti objectively uh, looking at the situation. And from uh, things that I've heard from behind the scenes is that this is a bioweapon. And again, um, that's pretty easy to determine, but it's not a virus. It's just a classical bioweapon that was uh, used prolifically by the Mongols as their uh, Mongol invasions started to taper down about 100 years later. They realized it was too difficult to control the European population. So why don't we just make a disease to get rid of them? And that was, of course, created with um, the rodents and marsupials and uh, in a certain way and spread throughout to become the, the bubonic plague. And then uh, you've had several plagues in between that. And then the next big one was in um, 1918, which actually killed uh, about as many people um, in one-tenth or one-twentieth the time. Uh, and that also, that was created by the uh, American army uh, the same, using the same methodology. So um, I would say uh, there is a patient zero, but it's not known because too many questions will be uh, asked, you see. For example, 
where you saw the outbreak start in places like Iran and Italy and the northwestern U.S. Uh, and in China, uh, there are people that know how it was started, but and and they're not showing you that on television. So if anyone were to look at this very carefully, uh, there are some cases that people do get quote unquote flu type symptoms that are very aggressive, but are not fl the flu as such, but are closer to the 1918 pandemic, which killed people in a day. And there are also there is also enough evidence to show that there's presence of uh, what's called you could loosely call organophosphofluorines, which is the sarin gas type constituents, which paralyze the lungs, for example, the muscles of the lungs which I've, you can also see some people that supposedly have recovered from that give a very similar um, uh, response or, or testimony to people who have suffered a sarin gas attack, which for, would be, for example, people that are survivors of the first Iraqi war or various other chemical, um, uh, th tactical chemical weapons used in the field. Uh, that is a, it actually, I think there about uh, a month ago when this started, I started looking at, there's a couple of field manuals online, army field manuals. I don't think it was the U S army. It was another one about uh, chemical weapon um, protection and the symptoms of various weapons. And some of them sound very similar to what you see going on right now. Like for example, the description that the nurse gave. So, but again, uh, if you live in a society that accepts secrets, this is simply one of the benefits of accepting it. And what are some of the uh, conceivable countermeasures for this ailment? I know you've talked in the past about certain things regarding silver and baking soda and such. So there are certain things that you can put in place to sort of preempt a bad situation, no? Sure. Uh, from the chemical uh, attack, uh, you know, I think a drop of sarin gas from a, a liquid from a helicopter on a large area will, will whoever walks within, you know, half a kilometer of that area will be uh, induced or poisoned by it varying degrees for days. So it's very, very toxic. Um, so that would supplement, for example, what they're doing with the biological stuff. See, personally, I don't think the people that are alive today are as smart as the people uh, or as cruel as the people were around 1918, the Rockefeller Foundation and the Surgeon General at the time uh, to, to make such a, a, a pandemic as they did then. Now, I think, the, the, believe it or not, even with the advent of uh, constant violence and uh, degrade, degradation of morality, I don't think they're as cruel as those people were back then. So perhaps they didn't have a biological system. Um, in place uh, to spread as well as they would like, so they supplement it with the chemical. Now, if you're subject to the chemical aspect, it typically has a very light, fruity smell. But if you smell it, it's it's kind of too late, right? It's like heavy artillery. When you hear it, it's too late. Uh, I, I would think uh, with that would be just uh, beware of suspicious characters. You know, a van, uh, typically uh, someone in society that shouldn't be there or if you get that feeling that intuitive feeling that something's wrong here stay away uh, most people are pretty good with that but again that would be topical washing and uh, there are antidotes uh, for that uh, they work mildly they're uh, meaning they may not always work uh, for the chemical side and one of them is um, a plant uh, I think it's called um, it's a it's a nightshade uh, belladonna plant uh, as small poison, it's considered toxic and hallucinogenic. Uh, uh, basically, uh, antidotes for 
this type of chemical that would disable the lungs that can be called the flu. Antidotes would be alkaloids, right? Maybe baking soda and water, maybe uh, the, the green kratom leaf, uh, any form of alkaloid, but it has to be a potent and specific variety, uh, best found in the, in the belladonna plant and a variation of. Okay, in terms of the biological side, uh, if you are not formatted, for example, uh, you, you might have heard that uh, there have been plagues that ravaged a town or a city or an area and some people didn't get it. I was on a private Skype call recently and someone says, yeah, uh, there are people that go in, uh, to a leper colony to help them out and they don't get, they don't get the leprosy, for example, or uh, so on. You know, you hear about uh, humanitarian missions uh, and the people don't get sick. Um, and on the other hand, where you have these laboratory situations where you had the the programmed or engineered Ebola breakout in Nigeria a couple of years ago, uh, most of the observers that were there were wearing full hazmat suits with breathing tanks. And, and even with that kind of protection, 20 or 30 percent of them still acquired the disease, even though there was they were completely materially separated. Um, so. To not induce it or to not format it, so you become one of those people that I'm not going to use the term immune, but just use it in a literary and not a literary sense immune. Here you're looking at a formatting system, so it doesn't read the disease. What I mean by that is, um, you know, years ago certain computers, if you hooked them up together, they couldn't talk to each other, right? Because of the formatting, the information wouldn't transfer over. So basically, how do you change your body uh, to not be format to not format the disease? Like one of the things you hear, well, it spreads very quickly amongst humans, but animals don't get it. Well, so does that mean that if I have I'm petting a kitty cat all day or have a pet dog that, you know, licks my face when I'm sick, it won't get sick? Yep, that's right. The animals don't get it. Well, you know, the animals share about 90 percent or like really mammals share about ninety nine point nine 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 percent of biology on that level. And a uh, fruit fly has 90, 85% of human DNA. Broccoli is 75% human DNA. So would a piece of broccoli catch the disease? <laughs> no, because it's not formatted for that, right? So what I mean by that is when the format is changed, like for example, again, the people who did not contract leprosy when they went to do the mission work or whatever disease when they went to do that humanitarian mission, some of them did, but some of them didn't. And the ones that didn't, why isn't there any study on that? And why is it when they do study, they just say they have a robust immune system or whatever, and that's it. They don't study the mechanism because there is no material mechanism behind it. Um, it, it's again, it's a formatting mechanism. Uh, now, one part of me say, can say, well, I wish there was a mechanical mechanism like a virus that did it because then it's purely material. Um, they say wear gloves and masks, that's fine, but the mop gear that you're wearing on your face, in the military it's called the mop-up gear to clean something, right? Uh, those masks are not even one micron absolute, um, you know, and the what they're calling a vi virus is in the nanometers, which is, 100,000 times smaller than the smallest uh, opening on a face mask. So that's kind of ridiculous. Everyone can has heard more than enough, wash your hands, stay away, you know, what they call now uh, social distancing and all that. But there is no talk, I assure you, at all about the induction of disease that was well known throughout history and also the formatting on how someone has to be formatted to actually accept the information. 
And uh, that's where, for example, um, I, I say that this is a planned, deliberate attack because if the if the authorities, any authority, religious, governmental, policing, ac academic, or whatever, was really concerned or allowed to show concern, they would be suggesting uh, the use of colloidal silver. Every doctor that's looked into it or any scientist looked into it, they'll tell you, yeah, pretty much within 20 minutes gets rid of any biological um, condition that's considered hazard. Within 20 minutes, and if, if someone has it in their body or is developed in their body within 12 hours. Right? There's no talk about colloidal silver at all. There's no talk about ozonation, you know, where you have an ozone machine. Uh, ozone machines are used in industry uh, very often to disinfect things because of the ionization. Um, like Giardia is one of the, was a big um, parasite in, in, in water for a very long time. And any place that installed um, Ozone, an ozone machine within the water line, uh, you know, uh, neutralized it or eradicated it. So again, uh, you'll always hear an argument. Uh, they're always going to try to lawyer the argument. We'll say, well, Greek, you know, look at all the stuff about this, or you know, it doesn't work, or this is toxic, or this is whatever. So again, you're always going to hear a contrary point of view to this because number one, there's no money in ozonating because once you buy the machine, you, you're, as long as it keeps working, it's good for life. And there's no uh, money that to market colloidal silver because, you know, uh, a few grams of silver can make enough co colloidal silver water for a million people. So it doesn't really uh, suit, you know, the, the economic model. So again, the, um, the research that someone can do, there is on, uh, I believe on, on the internet, uh, a few interviews with uh, some older people that survived the American, uh, or it's called the Spanish flu. And there's an interview with an older lady and she's uh, sitting there telling people that, well, no one in our family uh, caught it because uh, every morning our mother would put some soda in water and have us drink it. And she says it balanced and cleaned our system. And whoever did that didn't get it. Now, when she says soda, I'm suggesting she means a baking soda. Um, so when you, some people say, well, that makes you alkaline and all that. But, you know, okay, that, that's all right to say that. But it's not the alkaline because sodium hydroxide, which is more alkaline, doesn't help. You see, so it's the, it's what the mineral soda is. Uh, it changes your format. Just like, for example, uh, when someone drinks a lot of alcohol, doesn't it change their format? You ever notice how they can't walk very well anymore? Their speech is slurred. Their thinking is dulled or not as sharp. Their facial expressions change. They smell differently, right? It's just a little bit of alcohol, if you compare it to the volume of the human body, can change, completely change someone's format. Or even just a tiny amount of alcohol that gives someone a buzz changes their format, you know, their being, you see. So that's what I mean by formatting. Uh, the colloidal silver does uh, very much the same. They don't understand the vehicle and they don't want to understand it publicly because it, it, it makes you self-sufficient, um, the benefits of colloidal silver. But if you search around, there are mainstream scientists and doctors uh, that have been asked, I'm sure, I haven't looked at it, but I've seen it in the past because there are many suggested outbreaks in society worldwide and in, in what they call the United States for the past decade or two. But uh, they always comment, especially the older doctors, that, yeah, colloidal silver will knock everything out, but we just haven't tested it on this one yet, right? 
So, um, and there's other things. I mean, other things that are, are beyond mentioning that can, can still be discovered. And with the level of panic that we've seen people display, whether it's the run on the supermarkets or the hostility towards certain ethnic groups that they feel carry the pathogen, what have you observed in your locale, Greek? How have your surroundings changed in recent months? Recent months, more like the recent uh, two weeks or so, no matter where I go, even a premium shop, I can't find rice, right, to buy. Uh, and I have rice, uh, but I'm just saying I see the empty shelves and all that, which again, you know, it, I don't know if you've run into people recently, right, I'm being sarcastic here, but they're not too smart. So when you see um, consistent events throughout places, it's been planned. You know, let's uh, some group sitting around somewhere saying, you know, let's start uh, getting the notion of uh, a run on the market. You know, you go in here today and buy all the toilet paper and you go over there and buy all this. When people come in, they see it's empty and then all of a sudden they got the idea, you see. In other words, people are too stupid to hoard or do anything, even riot, believe it or not. There has to be a provocateur. This seems like a provocateur type thing. And it's also on both lines. I think they're, 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 I looked up online about the supply of rice. I was just curious. And all the manufacturers are everyone's saying there's plenty of food to go around. And then you'll, there'll be other talk about, oh, but the logistics have changed a little bit, right? So artificial scarcity. I mean, uh, the people that run this world or own this world and run it have no problem with dumping food into the ocean so you can starve. And the sooner you understand that, the more clear you'll have, a clarity you'll have on why things are happening, right? Uh, and when they're talking about health is your concern, your safety, they wouldn't want anything more than everyone pretty much wiped out but with, with just uh, a group of not necessarily mindless slaves left because they're already mindless, but obedient, unquestioning, without a doubt type of slave to be left over in, in the human aspect. But again, what I see going on uh, is uh, I, I, my, my, um, my needs are very minimal. Like, for example, uh, uh, I did run out of paper towels and toilet paper and all that. I've had a couple of rolls or whatever, and I've noticed for the past two weeks they're not around, right? So where is another supply chain to get paper? Hmm, restaurant supply. I call up the restaurant supply and say, do you guys have any uh, like table napkins, you know, and, uh, you know, rolls of paper for the bathroom? She said, no toilet paper, but hand rolls and napkins. We've got all that you'd ever want. And I happen to know some of these people. And uh, I, I went and got about a year supply for less than 30 or 40 bucks of all kinds of paper goods. But do I go around and telling people, go to the restaurant supply and you'll have all the paper you want, you know, instead of the regular store. Yeah, I just did. Indeed. Yeah, right. By saying it here. So last thing about the um, current health crisis, the pandemics of the past 15 years, you know, we've had a bunch since the 2000s with the SARS and the bird flu and the swine flu and the MERS outbreak and Ebola and Zika and so on and so forth. They have not resulted in the level of crackdown that we're seeing currently. So, I'm not sure whether this is something that will blow over and then resurface again in a few years as the other pandemics have, or if this is an outbreak that will reshape the world through violent loss of life, loss of business, and the introduction of uh, policies that curtail people's freedoms. From what you know, should we anticipate the latter or the former? Uh, maybe, uh, let me just put it another way. Uh, I would say that people haven't been free for over a century. 
their perceived freedoms, which is fine. Like I've said in other sonics, you could pretty much do anything to people. Uh, if you use psychology, uh, give you an example. Uh, have you ever heard me mention that there's going to be a, a, a pedophilia, pederastic and cannibalism agenda thrusted into society and it'll be welcomed and put to put to use? I think I've said that in the past. Now, if you mention that to people now, they'll say no way, but you know, it's coming and you will love it because you're going to fall for it. So uh, I don't see any, ch I just see uh, the way things are changing a little bit uh, to lead to what I've been saying for a long time, which is the, the focal of power uh, going from the Western world to the, you know, what's called Southwest Asia or the Middle East, uh, as you find in some of the ancient prophecies. Um, again, uh, the, I just see dead people just walking around and they don't know where they are, what they are, or what's going on. So in terms of the authorities uh, doing uh, whatever they're doing, shenanigans, you know, even if they opened concentration camps and decided to put half the population in there, I think there'll be minimum resistance. In other words, the possibility to resist the authority uh, that is put in place right now is impossible because everyone's tied into the digital network. And um, uh, that's what I see. All right, then. Well, I feel like we've talked enough about what's going on at the present time and how that might spill over into the near future, but I also want to talk about the further future and what lies in next year and beyond. But I also think it's worth looking at one of the frames of reference we're using for that kind of prediction, which is the system of timekeeping. Modern man keeps time using the Gregorian calendar, something which the Greek refers to as the Pope's work schedule with a bit of derision, I think. And I believe the implication is that it's a calendar system that originated from a papal decree, which serves more as a metric for monitoring one's subjects than anything else. Can you talk a bit about why the, calen the Gregorian calendar is something that you regard with such scoffing? Anything unlawful I try to regard as scoffing. It's not lawful, meaning it has no bearing in, in anything that is uh, accountable. It's completely arbitrary, and it's based on, uh, it, in order for the Vatican system or Catholics to exist, you need a, uh, an abundant crop of evil and ignorant people, not informed and not good people. In other words, most of the people that adhere to this system are ignorant. They don't know what's going on, and they just tell, if they're told it's good, they go for it. Then the evil ones that know what it is and just like having power over people. That's all. I, and there's no ex, the only exceptions there are temporary where someone kind of wakes up to what's going on and looks for an exit strategy, either from the belief system or the actual workings of the institution. And I have met a couple of, by the way, Catholic priests who have quit because they found out what it was about. And by the way, when if you're an ordained Catholic priest and you want to get out of the clergy, they give you a card and they say, go go to this office or call this guy and uh, they'll, you know, continue with this type of career. And uh, one of the guys that did that had a piece of paper with an address and a phone number. He showed up and he looked up at the door. It said Central Intelligence Agency. So anyway, um, uh, uh, it's completely unlawful. For example, if you study the ref any references to the Julian or uh, Gregorian system, it's considered arbitrary. In other words, they just count days. There are no weeks or months or years. Uh, they started uh, bunching things up with uh, different types of nomenclature for years and months. Uh, they'll even uh, tell you like the first month of this year is a B year or a D year or whatever. I mean, it's kind of like a bizarre um, aspect of, uh, of you know, uh, 
that it's been adopted. And, and it's not just that. There are other organizations and institutions that try to institute their own timekeeping system, like Mayans that had a 20-day month, right? Yeah, Stalin tried to have a 10-day work week. Uh, Eastman Kodak in Rochester, New York, tried to develop his own time. IBM did develop their own time schedule for their workers. So basically, it's just the memorialization of events for scheduling purposes. But to be lawful, it means that anyone can do it once they understand the process, and there's nothing really to buy. You're not dependent on some uh, fictional arbitrary system. Like, for example, if you study timekeeping, it's in the language as well. For thousands of years, people try to settle their debts uh, before the full moon came, which is the new moon, by the way, rises in the east. Uh, it's not the dark slither moon that they call the new moon. That's in a part of an Egyptian nomenclature, which I may or may not discuss at the moment. But people always try to settle their de debts uh, by the full moon. That's why today uh, they try to settle bills with you with, uh, every month. You get it? You get a monthly bill. Uh, also, you look at uh, the way that time is done in, in reckoning the days. Uh, the day starts at high noon, at solar noon. And um, these two things I just said about the moon and uh, the day starting at solar noon are typically found in astronomy, not astrology, but astronomy 101 classes or the first year of astronomy in university. They do go through this. Uh, you could look up that for scientific and academic purposes, uh, the day starts at solar noon, but for the people, it's civil midnight, right? So, uh, for example, uh, again, regarding the um, the moon, um, or actually regarding the day, uh, if people remember the pre-electronic banking conventions, if you deposited a check in the bank before, or afternoon, I should say, it was counted as the next day, right? Uh, there's an old song, uh, I think it was the door, as the night divides the day, right? So basically you go from noon to noon. Um, that's why, uh, you know, you have uh, something like breakfast, right? You eat breakfast in the morning because you fast for the day and you break your fast at the end of the day, which is right before noon. Now this, if anyone's studying any older ancient writs and understands uh, timekeeping, you will, uh, you'll get a pretty good handle on what's going on. In terms of the year, the yearly cycle, um, again, the Catholic Vatican principle is uh, got to jam it all together uh, to make it work. And the year is not about the Earth's rotation around the sun, but the actual return of the sun or the return of the seasons to the year. The typical measurable years go from spring to fall, and then the winter is an interim period. You could look at spring as being uh, a time of starting new projects or planting sowing, um, uh, you know, a new development. Uh, summer is the time for it to grow. Fall is a harvest and winter is an interim period. Humans are agricultural. Uh, like if you were uh, an agricultural individual, you'd be there at the springtime, you'd be there in the summer and you'd be there in the fall. Those are critical times. But let's say you needed to replace the roof or build a new wagon wheel or you needed to go on a long trip somewhere. You didn't do it in the spring or the summer or the fall. You did it in the winter. The winter is an interim period usually for that, for those things. Uh, because if you try to do it during the spring, summer, or fall, you're taking time away from production uh, on the, uh, you know, uh, of agriculture. So once you understand these cycles, and people are still agricultural, by the way, you, you're not, um, 
you can also think of it, you know, uh, you're a society that started by the by the development of fire or the discovery of fire in a, almost in a Promethean way as a metaphor. And you're pretty much, that's the type of society you are. You can daydream and imagine all you want about how you'd like your society to be technological or so. Technological just means tools. Um, but can you imagine a society that developed magnetism instead of fire? It would be very different than yours. So you're kind of, uh, all you can imagine, no matter how far-fetched it is, it still brings you back to being agricultural. And if and anyone that works with agriculture, if you're not lawful, you're going to suffer great loss, right? So in other words, if you don't handle the spring, summer, uh, and fall properly, you're probably going to starve unless you have enough uh, set aside. And you'd have to do it right the next year to keep it going. That's what I mean by lawful timekeeping. In other words, having a... Uh, uh, a record, uh, a way to memorialize events, which is time, uh, that is that can be picked up at anyone at any time. Uh, for example, what a lawful timekeeping system does is transcends various other arbitrary uh, modalities, meaning like an arbitrary modality would be the Gregorian, Julian, or the Mayan, or the Egyptian. Those are like brand name uh, timekeeping uh, modalities. And once that society goes away and knowledge of how to use their timekeeping goes away, you've lost also their record of time, you see. Um, so if you keep to record uh, recording and memorializing events by uh, lawful timekeeping means, which is using the earth, uh, the sun, and the moon, and then of course for longer durations, the constellations, uh, no matter where you are, uh, on the earth, you'll always um, have a pretty accurate record of memorializing those events. All right. But um, even though the Gregorian system can be shown to be fallacious, it is widely known that we have a lot of other ones that outdate the Julian system, such as the Iranian calendar, the Chinese one, the Eastern Orthodox have their own calendar. I think the Assyrian culture also has their own. Which amongst those kinds of systems should be given preeminence? Do any of them map perfectly onto the lawfulness that you speak of? None of them. None of them work because they, they're trying to uh, use a form of divination and mathematics to make it work uh, on a schedule basis. And it really it's observational. In other words, they're not lawful systems. For example, you could look at those systems and they consider the new moon to be the dark moon. There is uh, a small remnant of the old bow religion, which is now called Buddhism, uh, which is actually a pretty horrible society back then. They were, they were pretty nasty people. But uh, they do consider in their calendrical system the full moon to be the new moon. But outside of that, it falls apart again. I would say that that old bow system, uh, they, they might have come close to having something closely lawful. But whenever you see the dark moon being the new moon, you're looking at that uh, paleo, or I shouldn't say paleo, I mean, yeah, it is paleo-Egyptian uh, first dynasty uh, system. And maybe I should just cover that. Typically, they relied the priesthood or the, the pharaonic priesthood, the, uh, the kafaz, uh, relied on astronomical signs, um, and uh, they relied on uh, a, a, a moon system, uh, a mini, meaning there's no such thing as a lunar calendar, but the moon to determine the month, which where debts were settled, and also it's a turn of, of, of events based on a grouping of weeks, uh, four weeks. Uh, 
And there was a lot of, you might call it, uh, consideration that the celestials were not as they are taught today, millions of miles away or whatever, but they believed that all of the celestials that they saw were within reach, within the sky that we see, and they were subject to predation. Meaning, uh, what if a big monster or a demon came and swallowed the moon? We would no longer be able to uh, determine time with the moon, and that would really suck, wouldn't it? So uh, if, we, if the big monster comes and eats the moon up in the sky, uh, how do we manage our monthly you know, things that we have to do? Well, the only one that could really substitute that is what comes out of the mouth of Pharaoh. Well... So when the moon started going towards the middle of the month, you know, which was the, the dark phase, they told Pharaoh, listen, you can't go anywhere. You must stay in the palace. You stay here uh, until the moon reappears, because if it doesn't reappear and it's been predated on by some sky monster, you now take its place. Right. And you must guide us. Right. So Pharaoh's like, OK, you know, let's see what's on Netflix. Right. <laughs> I have to be in the palace for three days. You know, maybe send me some more young boys or young girls or whatever they were doing at the time. And finally, when the new moon was sighted, what they called the new moon, uh, when the crescent was sighted, they said, ah, see, the moon has renewed itself. It wasn't eaten. Pharaoh is free to go about his business throughout his realm. And that means that the moon was renewed. So that is our new moon now. Do you see how ridiculous this is? Saying that the dark moon can be used for accurate observation is a fallacy because the, one of the benefits of having the full moon as your new moon is you put a stick in the ground and you get a shadow which can be recorded. Where you can't do that with the dark moon. When is it dark? When is it not dark? It, it's, it takes, there's no way to record that. Where you can actually have what's called, quote unquote, a sundial where you can actually etch a mark. You know, it, noon, if you, if you, solar noon, if you, start making a sundial and uh, uh, you start marking it where noontime is, you'll notice that uh, it moves several arcs every year. In other words, noontime is a little bit more towards the east this year than it was last year, right? So you can see the progression of the ages of the centuries and the millennia by where noontime is marked. And that is, could be done by anyone. You don't need a special calendrical system. So, uh, again, um, to just to get people's minds out of their reference points, these are things that we agree on to keep schedule. And, and if you start agreeing that um, you're going to run your life by something that is arbitrary and unlawful, do you think there are any side effects to that? Yeah, of course there are. Yeah, I'd say so. So if you, how long can a society uh, go through unauthorized acts before they get a pandemic? Whether it's engineered or natural, it's irrelevant. Do you see? Mm -hmm. Is it well-deserved? Uh, I don't know. If, if I told you that there's a society of cannibals and headhunters that all died of a pandemic on that, on that island, based on where you're, what you were raised in, how much compassion would you have for them? Most people would say, I'm glad those savages died. Right? Do you think there's possibly uh, beyond individuals in other society that is looking at this society as being completely unawful, which it is, saying pandemic, how come it hasn't wiped them all out? Where's this, you know, why should we sympathize with them? Right? Now I see the logic there. Well, the purpose of talking about the timekeeping is to lead into the next part, which is going to be getting to the end of the, the stream, which is that we're going to talk about what the future holds.
And I think that when we talk about looking at things on a timeline, it's important to know what timeline it is that you're considering and how to measure that. And more importantly, where the source material is for that. So what, what we haven't talked about with regards to timekeeping is what the source uh, literature is on where to get information on the timepieces and how to use them effectively. We're not going to look at that on this stream, but that's just to say that these are things that you have to look into. Um, but now let's talk about what we can see approaching in the coming years. We've got this health crisis here that might evolve into something that's worse. We certainly know that there's an economic downturn that's taking place with the lack of business activity. Um, so I want to start with economics. Greek, what do you see happening in the economy of the near and far future? Oh, well, the economy, it's not going to go into any kind of a lawful status because the the economy is pretty much governed by uh, unlawfulness. You know, you don't have a lawful means of exchange. You don't have a system of law in place. You have a legal system that is not law. Um, uh, like I think I've mentioned, I've even told an attorney who was being sued recently, you should study the law and you'll beat the other attorney because attorneys don't know anything about law. And he says, yeah, that's right. Okay, so there is no law. Uh, you have uh, uh, a, a series of events that are going to take place with c considering the apathy of humanity, right? They're just going to brush themselves off. And like I said earlier, if you, uh, you know, turned on what they call the news and they said, well, we're going to have to report half of society to concentration camps, that that'll happen. They can, they'll do that. That's how dumb the people are uh, across the planet right now. Um, I think there was a financier back turn of the century, and uh, he was asked, uh, what, what are you going to do if um, the people find out that the financial system is a scam? He says, oh, that's easy. I'm just going to pay half. I'm going to print enough money um, to pay half the people to kill off the other half, right? So that still holds true today. I don't see any negative, uh, anything negative coming out of this uh, as people uh, uh, that are doom and gloomers. I think this is just another 9-11 type event, um, which I've mentioned in the past. Look for these axial type, mini axial periods that change the way things uh, uh, are conducted or the, 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 the common, the common um, conversation for example, after what's uh, September 11th, 2001, they said, well, this is a post 9-11 world, right? Well, now it's going to be a past coronavirus world, right? That's, that's, you'll hear that a little bit now. And a lot of the things that you see imposed on the public now that they accept will carry through. But that is irrelevant. Uh, what I mean by being irrelevant is if you look at where you are in the movie, you're near the end of, well, the movie already ended. You're looking at the credits and simply these crises and quote unquote uh, terror events and wars and all these things that you're seeing are just rehashing things that have happened in history before to lead mankind to the final wrap up of their worldwide society before the new society starts. So that was a lot to say in one sentence, but I would suggest that the next thing to look for after this is, you know, whatever whatever restrictions you see that are put on society will be, of course, uh, accepted. There will be no memory of anything before this, as usual, and <laughs> you will uh, continue uh, uh, to see what's called the Western world as being, quote unquote, a superpower. And I'm including the Russian system from a military point of view, they consider that a superpower also, but the Western superpowers being uh, brought lower and lower and lower in their economic productive ability and uh, social moral standards and whatever else you, you want to judge a society by. 
And within the interim, you're going to see a reorganization in rapid form and um, what's called investment, meaning of time, of thought energy, material goods, um, political affirmation in, in the place uh, Southwest Asia, known as the Middle East. And you will see the Middle East starting to grow by by, by description that I just gave and beyond. And the Western powers, meaning Europe and the United States and what have you, or the black nobility, the old way of things, that's going to start to play second fiddle to an emerging uh, economy, political status, um, uh, entertainment status, scientific status, and all that in the Middle East, generally, is what you're going to start seeing. Not yet. Probably beyond uh, the 2022 summertime, uh, 2022, the fall, uh, around 2023, you're going to see a lot of activity towards what I just mentioned. And by the year uh, on the Pope's work schedule, 2025, there'll be no doubt that there is a tremendous amount of investment and, and um, emphasis being put on that part of the world, meaning the Middle East. All right. Then that is something that people will have to keep an eye on. And so, having covered the range of topics I planned for this episode, I'd say that we're at the end of the Greek Speak podcast, but I would like to conclude the stream by asking the Greek to restate some exposition that I've heard you speak on in the past, which served as my entry point into Greek Speak. What I first reacted to was when you spoke of how mankind is so utterly unable to identify the cause of their condition and the underlying ordinance behind their traditions. So you've illuminated that by talking about where mankind gets laws from and by explaining how ancient practices of the past have been revived through parody in a way that still pays homage to the powers that actually rule the world. So can we end things off by revisiting some of those things? Sure. One of the things that we might have brought up in note recently was what do cannibals, birthdays and dolls have in common? And I think most of the people, unless there are new listeners, probably uh, have heard this before. Also, uh, I will give you that uh, in a second, but I also want to uh, reiterate what you just said, which is I've looked at most of the things, if not all of the things that men, uh, mankind's culture celebrate, and they all have some kind of uh, a root in something very macabre, either uh, murder, rape, or uh, e the e sacrificing of children. And, and uh, uh, I have not found uh, very little, if not anything, that is not based on basically murder, mayhem, rape, or child sacrifice. And also I'm gonna put out something that I haven't said before. There's a whole myriad of them, but you know, the, the clown face also, you know, the cl how clowns are always shown to children as being a happy, uh, joyous, celebratory thing. And I'm, maybe I should uh, give you a little bit of that first, maybe before the cannibals, birthdays and dolls. And most people have been uh, aware of my criticism of a subculture known as the kids culture and kids are baby goats, of course, which is a sacrificial animal. But there, there's no, if the future depends on your children, you have none because all your, all your children have been turned into goats with your mouth by calling them kids in the English language, at least. But one of the celebratory figures that you typically see in the kids culture, this kids subculture is the, um, the involvement of, uh, this clown figure, you see it uh, 
uh, in the Ronald McDonald stuff. You see it in a lot of their toys. You see it as something to be observed as, you know, a happy-go-lucky, celebratory, humorous, whatever. And, of course, there's been a play on, you know, the killer clowns now and all this other stuff. But the clown face itself with the exaggerated uh, mouth, the very pale skin, and the exaggerated distorted eyebrows and eyes and distorted hair uh, comes from um, an effigy or basically the recordation of uh, an event that was basically started with uh, the gladiators, actually came before the gladiators in Rome, but I'll give them as an example. Uh, it, within certain of games, the, it, the victor in a, glad in a bout with another gladiator would of course kill his victim. It was a fight to the death, and then to celebrate that death and to show his his willingness to, uh, you know, basically take on that person, you know, take whatever that person had that made them that person, was that in front of the audience they would remove um, and uh, skin off the face of their victim, and they would place it over their own face. And of course, if you tore someone's face off and put it on your face, the eyes would be distorted, the mouth would be stretched out, and the hair would be, right, just like the clown face with the pale skin. There's no blood rushing through it. So we're talking about a very macabre, uh, some people may not be macabre. Basically, if you spoke to the people in the audience back then, they probably liked it. But that is what the clown face uh, came from. And this is what you're putting in front of your children. So another thing you're putting in front of your children is uh, what do cannibals, birthdays, and dolls have in common? And that sounds like an absurd question because they don't seem interrelated at all. Well, yes, they are. First, first of all, when we consider the ancient cultures, even in many of the uh, secular uh, public fool systems or education systems, they tell you the society started in the Middle East, the Mesopotamian area. And they had uh, a language, it was basically a a vernacular or a type of language known as Hebrew Chaldean. And the, the, the priests of that culture were known as the Kahans. And what they would essentially do is, um, from a very dark sense, tell people if they wanted prosperity, they had to sacrifice a child. And not only sacrifice it, but take some, uh, you know, take, eat some of the flesh. It didn't matter how much you ate, just as long as you put some of the flesh in your, in your body. That's why the eating of human flesh is basically on Baalism, because the god that you were doing it for was a Baal or a lord. Today, when you go to church, they tell you to worship the Lord, right? Um, so in essence, you know, it's, it could be argued to some degree, but most things do show etymologically the word kahan, Baal or cannibal does come from that source, uh, from a Western word perspective. And of course, anyone, if you mentioned cannibalism, they do understand what you're saying, but they don't understand this was a ritualistic rite in ancient religious practices. And the term Baal is still carried over in the Christian and many other religions as the Lord as well. So what was interesting about this is the people didn't notice much prosperity coming from this. So eventually what they did is they, um, uh, is they started doing a parody of this. Um, but before I get to the parody, I left out what the doll, the purpose of the doll was, because it's cannibals, birthdays, and dolls. 
when the parents returned back home after the sacrifice was done, the other siblings asked where their sibling was, their brother or sister. So the altar boys of the priest of the Lord or the cannibal would make an effigy or a small model of the child and you call a doll. So the children were told, here, play with this because your brother and sister is away for now, right? They lie to the children like they do today. And the children at least had a, a doll instead of their brother or sister. So now you understand, there, you know, uh, little girls like to play with dolls. Oh, yes, they do. Because maybe the little girls were more emotionally attached to their brother or sister than the young boys. But they did also develop dolls for boys later on as well. So you're looking at the macabre, again, uh, ritual still maintained in current traditions. Now, again, this didn't bring prosperity. So why not uh, do, for those that were too squeamish, instead of sacrificing the child, why don't we do parody? the event. So you bake a loaf of sweet bread, which represents the uh, child, and you put lights in it, which represents the life. And everyone attending the ceremony makes a uh, wish of, uh, makes a, uh, brings presents, uh, because the, uh, the person who, uh, who this celebration is for, usually the child, uh, is to make a wish of prosperity, because it's about prosperity. And they blow out the lights, which is the life, and they all eat some of the cake, which is the body of the child in symbolism. And to show that the wish of prosperity was met gracefully, the participants bring little presents or gifts to the ceremony. So there's your birthday cake celebration. Again, mimicking and parodying a human sacrifice. You might even see very often when there's a lot of criticism, even today on these pedophile networks, they, they're quote-unquote elites or upper levels of society, whatever, they always have a parody uh, at the dinner table or whatever of a human body of some sort still, even though they, you know, they are actually doing the real thing uh, behind the scenes. So there, there's your... Uh, there's your wonderful Western technologically evolved society with your uh, birthdays and your dolls and your clowns. Yeah, that is uh, quite a recontextualization of the things that most people think are innocuous or even worse, um, enjoyable. Right, and you can go on and on with what they call the Valentine's Day heart is not the human heart or a heart of anything because everyone knows that uh, the heart looks like a human fist. Those are the frontal view of a woman's genitalia, you know, which in Roman and other societies on that day were cut off and nailed to a door or uh, uh, what do you call mounted and dried so you can have it as a charm. Yep. And so let's um, let's end things off with the, this idea that your law comes from your God. That is the maxim. That is the, the standard on this planet. The maxim meaning that everyone knows this, it doesn't even have to be written. Wherever you see any law form throughout history, there was always a deific, deified figure attached to it. And you'll see this throughout history, no matter where you look. And uh, just to point out, in case anyone hasn't noticed, you'll, you have all countries, all the, the sovereign states, which are corporations or brand names, you know, the, whatever country you want to associate with or consider has a department of justice or a hall of justice with a goddess statue if you go that infinite bastion of uh, knowledge wikipedia ha 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 they will show you photographs of no less than 30 or 40 countries that have adapted this 
you know, pretty much, uh, and their priesthood is the uh, the bar association, right? So you, you might, people say, well, you know, Iran is enemy of the U.S. or North Korea is enemy of the U.S., but they all have bar associations, you know, it's kind of ridiculous again. But wherever you look through history, and even in modern society, the current uh, goddess uh, that's revered by the modern society is Justicia, uh, it's a revived goddess religion. So no matter how you want to take that as negative or positive, it's true. Uh, you'll always have some kind of a de- matron or patron god within your law form. But there's also this sort of also more general idea that people have to get their operating system from something that is higher up the hierarchy than they are, whether it's children looking to their parents or it's grown men and women looking to something else. Right. The way things are done on this planet is you have an authoritative figure. And there's another maxim that if you make men your authority, you're going to have slavery and oppression, where if you make the gods your authority, you don't. You actually have freedom, right, because you answer to them and they're non-material. So from that point of view, uh, you could look at uh, classifications and memorializations of law throughout history, and you will find that it's probably best memorialized in what's known as the biblical text. I'm not suggesting you go read a lot of the versions and things that are put out, but if you're not familiar with it, you can do a study on what's called biblical law, and you will see that it is probably the most diverse and most, uh, let's say, uh, widest uh, uh, aspect of uh, law form. There, You'll also find that uh, historically they like to talk about Hammurabi code, and things like that. And if you, they attribute that, for example, to a King Hammurabi, but he uh, had a God that he was justified to do this for, you see. So, uh, and of course the biblical God is Yahweh, and you don't see that in your uh, verses, uh, or you don't see this in your biblical versions because of the Judean influence, which put a ban on um, the use of his name, oh, 2200 years ago in fear of uh, one of the, for example, hedge laws or halakha laws, which is to uh, prevent blasphemy. Because if to prevent, well, if no one spoke his name, there's no way blasphemy could be committed, you see. So if you don't see Yahweh written in your Bible, that is because of a quote unquote uh, contemporary Jewish influence or Judaism influence in the rabbinical sense, which in essence is contrary to what the Bible says itself, because the biblical text says to proclaim his name freely. So uh, you're going to have to uh, probably, or not you, but this conversation or this type of expository information will take a, a, another set of um, sonic events to talk about. Yes, of course. And that does it, I think. There isn't much more that we can say that would motivate people to look into these things if they still don't feel like looking into it. And so what remains now, I think, is to delve into the finer points of things and tackle the high-level subjects that concern mankind's existence. And for my part, I'll be doing that by setting up a new website later in the year for that. Um, It's going to be looking into things that most people consider perhaps esoteric today, but those things will become more familiar as time goes on. And um, can I count on the Greek, perhaps, to join me for a podcast for that when it's ready? Uh, I don't know if you can, but yes, you may. Okay. <laughs> I'm just joking. Yeah. I'll take that. <laughs> All right. Um, well, thank you again to everyone who's 
tuned into the streams. We've done quite a few and I'm grateful for anybody that stuck around. Um, it means that the effort was reciprocated. So even though the podcast is over, I'm going to be directing my energies towards greekspeak.com still by writing articles for the rest of the year before launching the new website, which will focus on, like I said, the unseen realm of things. Um, and then I also want to extend a thank you to the Greek. You've taken the time. And of course, these podcasts don't exist without you. I couldn't ramble on for an hour and a half on my own. So thank you very much for your contribution. Oh, you're welcome. And, you know, I couldn't uh, ramble on for an hour and a half on my own either, but I seem to always find myself doing so. No, you're good at what you do. And I think um, people appreciate that. Okay, you're welcome. And we'll uh, see everyone again sometime yes. soon. Thank you to everybody who tuned in, and we will see you at the next podcast series. Thank you.